0: BET is the global meeting place for the education community. A trusted brand with more than 30 years of heritage, the BET series promotes the discovery of knowledge and technology to enhance lifelong learning. The BET series attracts over 60,000 educators, leaders and practitioners alongside more than 1,250 technology providers from around the globe. For more information, go to www.betshow.com forward slash BET dash global, dash series.
1: Given the opportunity, all children are geniuses in their own right. Mm -hmm. And to me, children, they're born curious, you know, and the biggest challenge we all have is to work together to ensure that they stay curious. And and when they are, then I think we know our job is done. The problem is many um, of the structures we have tends to kill that curiosity so that's something that we have to keep alive and hopefully EdTech can help do that.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to this the newest episode of a brand new What Matters in EdTech series this time with a focus on all things global and co-curated as ever by our friends at BET. This series is all about the things that matter in education and how and when tech might help. And this first episode looks at the Asia region. First of all, these are unprecedented times as we've heard so often lately. Coronavirus is changing how we work, how we learn, how we teach and how we stay in touch with loved ones. If you're listening to this now near the time of recording you'll hear from educators and tech specialists from around the world sharing how they have coped with moving online or embedding practices online. If you're listening in when all this is over hopefully we hope that we can come out the other side more compassionate, more connected and more appreciative of our face-to-face experiences in the world too. Most of all we are wishing all our listeners around the world strength and courage and compassion with all that you are juggling. We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us using the hashtag EdTechPodcast and BetAsia. Asia was the first region to see the impact of COVID-19 on the education system, including school and university closures. At the time of recording, a record number of 1.54 billion children and youth have been impacted by the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic, with 185 countries in Asia, Europe, the Middle East, North America and South America announcing or implementing school and university closures. For online learning and edtech organisations, this has meant a huge surge in demand for services. For example, Chinese provider Yon Dao suffered a two-hour system crash last month after five million people took up its offer of free live courses. An Indian provider, Baiju's, has experienced a 60% increase in students using its products since it offered children free access to its app in early March to help offset the impact of school closures. In this episode, we speak to a range of educators and partners in the Asian region to talk about their approach to teaching and learning both before and during the coronavirus crisis. What tools and pedagogies are they utilising to best serve their students in the here and now, and also prepare Asia's youth for the connected digital world in the long term? And just how has coronavirus expedited or frustrated these strategies in the region? You'll also hear about how technology developed to be robust enough to take on one of the harshest environments out there, i.e. space, is being used to support data-intensive remote work and university research, and the mega-trends in Asia which are redefining value and identity for education, teaching and learning in the region. But first, the Asia region that we talk about is vast. Asia is the largest continent in the world, both by area and population, and the continent covers an area of over 17 million square miles, made up of 48 countries with a total population of over 4 billion people. So, let's hone in a bit. Who are we talking to this week? First up, Dr Fridolin Ting, a teaching fellow in the Department of Applied Mathematics at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University. Brilliant. So I'm excited to be doing this first interview for our next series. So uh, welcome on the line, Dr. Fridolin Ting.
3: Thank you, uh, Sophie. Great to be here. Uh, my honor, to be honest. I am a promoter of uh, and a big believer in uh, active teaching and learning. First, I was born in Malaysia. Then I grew up in Canada since I was seven. Long story short, I got a uh, moved to Hong Kong and... Uh, Yeah, I started teaching and I noticed the Asian students here were more passive than our North American students back in Canada when I taught there 10 years. Yeah, so I started investigating why and how Asian students, uh, you know, why they performed uh, better when we introduced active teaching methods to them and because you know i was very intimidated every time when i asked a question in my large 200 enrollment class you know do you have any questions and it was uh, completely silent so i was very very kind of distraught and didn't know what to do so that's when i started using technology such as uh P-Pole everywhere kahoot and after that i noticed like a big change in my students. They started talking more, answering more questions, and getting more involved. So then, like I said, I I decided to see whether this actually helped them actually learn. During my research, I ran across this meta-analysis done by Freeman. Basically, it's a, a study of lots of papers where they basically coded... Uh, all the active learning papers and their effectiveness on student academic performance. And they showed that on average, for students who were introduced active learning or active teaching in their classes, they performed 6% on average better than uh, relative to the traditional teaching class. And that just, you know, hit the nail for me. I just thought, This is it, we have to try to help our Asian students here in Hong Kong and Asia to be more actively learning and our teachers to be more actively teaching. That's when I started to apply for some funding from the Hong Kong government. Uh, They have this uh, teaching and learning uh, funding schemes called Triennium Teaching Learning Projects. And luckily they, uh, like this idea of introducing more active learning to their students with the help, of course, of technology. And all this uh, started rolling and we started producing uh, apps that actually caught the a lot of the teachers' attentions in the world. Now, one of them is YoTeach and uh, it's been uh, a great journey so far. Very, very fun, obviously. I'm very privileged to be able to help teachers to uh, teach actively around the world.
2: We also have Chris Jeffrey,
4: Chief Academic Officer at the British University Vietnam. Well, my name's Chris, and I am, as you said, the Chief Academic Officer. So, what I do is I look after all the academic elements here at BUV, uh, from admissions to teaching to discipline, uh, research, as well as uh, alumni and student experience. So I deal with the whole life cycle, I suppose, of the student um, and their time here at BUV.
2: Welcome also to Dr Sumitra Nair, Vice President at the Malaysia Digital Economy Corporation, or MDEC. Hi, Sophie. Thanks for having me on this podcast. Um, as you mentioned in the beginning,
1: in the introduction, I oversee the development of talents uh, for all digital and data-related roles. Yeah, because as Malaysia wants to, you know, increase the uh, contribution of the digital technology economic sectors into the GDP. Uh, and also with 4th IR and and so on, you find that increasingly roles are becoming more digital and digital is uh, one of the key requirements for jobs of the future. Uh, So digital is the first and the second area I'm interested in is data because of course with uh, AI and with cloud and connectivity, data is something which is at the fingertips of everyone and uh, is important to all roles regardless of, you know, what uh, what area of work you do. And so in my work, uh, what I do is I work closely with uh, like-minded stakeholders from both uh, public and private sectors to build the talent pipeline. And what I refer to here as the pipeline are those who are coming out of schools and universities, uh, and we also work with uh, other partners to facilitate upskilling and reskilling of people who are already in the workforce and this is to ensure their career continuity
2: and finally christian jones who works on strategy and planning for Z by hp
0: been an interesting progression day by day over the yeah. last few weeks
2: and david holland's education strategy manager for asia pacific and japan at hp
5: uh it, it's part of our condition we're born to learn we're wired to learn
2: <laughs> to get things started i asked this week's guests what their thoughts were on education and ed tech in the asian region David Hollands kicks off with the megatrends, which are shaping the region's response to skills development and research focus.
5: So, uh, I guess we're in a really interesting time because we have a whole bunch of sort of megatrends forces, as you as you describe. Um, and from a an HP perspective, uh, I guess from a business perspective, we look at these in terms of shaping or acting as a beacon for um, how we can sort of direct our research um, and look into the future and decide where our place might be. So there are four that we sort of identify. Rapid urbanisation, that's the expansion and proliferation of these mega cities; um, changing demographics. You know, we're, we're looking at countries that are rapidly ageing. So the skew of uh, rather uh, much older people is um, tipping the pyramid a little bit differently. So, in countries like Japan and developed countries, we're seeing a lot more older people in that country making up its population versus younger mm. um, Hyperglobalization. So that's that sense that everything's interconnected. And right now, we've got a uh, maybe a negative example of how where interconnectedness is um, on a negative side, really causing some problems for us. But thinking of it in terms of the Potential and the capacity for us to do incredible things. So, you see, people rise to the challenge right now around uh, COVID 19 in terms of our ability to share ideas. So, that sense that we're interconnected like we've never been before. And then finally, putting it all together, accelerated innovation. And so, that's that sense that we have so many people who are interconnected, not only in terms of their thoughts but uh, in different fields and even in different languages. So we could be collaborating and working on problems with people who speak very fundamentally different languages because we have technology in between allowing that facilitation. So rapid urbanization, changing demographics, hyper-globalization and accelerated innovation uh, sort of shaping the socioeconomic demographic and technological shifts that we're seeing and so education finds itself right in the mix of that. So you can have a, a fantastic country with a marvellous healthcare system that's free and uh, well, well-equipped hospitals. Um, but again, if we don't have enough um, trained physicians or surgeons, uh, you know, New Zealand at the time was facing sort of a, an average waiting time for surgery of uh, upwards of 300 days um, and, and that was growing, so this is something that we see in a lot of countries around the world. so this sort of puts up some challenges to the notion of how we train people uh, you know for the skills and the knowledge that we need uh, to address these issues um, notably we 've got a a whole bunch of um, you know the seventeen the sustainable development goals mm-hmm. uh, which one hundred and ninety two nations have signed up to uh, because we, we're headed towards uh, a whole bunch of challenges, um, and you know, in some analysis, um, we'll need, say, two Earths' worth of resources by 2030. So, of course, we don't have two Earths, so we have to start thinking about how do we fill the gap to come up with innovative solutions that is going to sort of paint a picture that's a lot better for our future.
2: I've got here, um, you've worked in over 50 countries uh, and you came to Vietnam via London, UK. What would you say are the defining characteristics of education in Vietnam stroke the Asia region as you see it?
4: Well, I think one thing is the major thing is the priority of education and the respect of education from both students and parents. It's really seen as an investment in the future for the family and the individual. So there's a a huge amount of effort in choosing the right uh, university and school and also developing and getting the best possible grades and results from the students after they graduate. So that's a really uh, an interesting and a pleasure to, to be dealing with. The other thing, as an academic, is uh, here in Vietnam we have Teachers Day every year, and it's a day that uh, students celebrate their teachers. And having been brought up uh, in the UK system, uh, that is a rarity that uh, anybody celebrates officially, teachers and educationists generally. So it's it's a very different mindset of the individual, but also the government and business uh, greatly value education and appreciate overtly, I suppose, the benefit for them and their family.
1: Yeah, I think very important and, and, I mean, of course, very important is the focus on self-learning and lifelong learning, Mm -hmm. right? With technologies uh, changing as quickly as it is, uh, these, you know, these changes are also then impacting industries. Industries are being disrupted. And the skills that are required for these uh, industries are also evolving very, very fast. And so we need to make sure that um, the workforce, whether it's the current or the emerging workforce, have skills that are relevant and transferable, right, to fit these fast-changing requirements. And so the only way that can happen is if we have a strong self-learning and lifelong learning Capability and culture, mm-hmm. right? uh, and I think this perhaps is a little bit lacking, um, a little bit lacking in in Asia, where the um, the habit of you know just reading or even lifelong learning is something that we're grappling with. I'm not sure whether it's a it's a situation that's unique to Asia, maybe maybe all over the world, um, but you know specifically, I feel it's really important because. In Asia, for example, we tend to have a strong focus on academic excellence. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people kind of tend to think, all right, I've I've graduated, I've done my exams, I've I'm done, you know, I've got a degree or a diploma and I've I'm set for life. But in this new emerging workforce, that's not gonna be enough. So people need to keep learning and they need to be comfortable with uh, relearning, unlearning and reinventing their skills as they go. And I think this is where EdTech plays a huge role because, you know, with EdTech, um, it's able to cater to individual learnings and preference. So I think that's uh, that's how EdTech can help. Yeah, the second thing that I think is critical is teacher readiness, mm-hmm. right? Um, so for us to ensure that you know, the emerging uh, workforce at least, has this love for learning, lifelong learning, Uh, the teaching and learning methods need to be more engaging and it needs to suit this new emerging generation as well as suit their current content consumption habits. Like, I mean, if you think about it, when we watch Amazon, whether it's Amazon Prime or, Mm. um, you know, Google Movies or Netflix, what we're doing is, or even Google for that matter, right? Search. What we're doing is, we're actually consuming content on demand, and that's not what happens in schools, right? Uh, it's a very different conventional kind of a teaching style, and I'm not sure whether the style that we have actually cultivates this love for learning, or whether it actually dampens the curiosity and the the you know the love. Uh, and the the desire to keep learning. I think that's something we've got to think about and how the teacher (laughs) can play a role there.
2: One person who is working directly on all this is Dr. Fridlin Ting. Here he is talking about the problem of passive student engagement in his early lectures.
3: Yeah, I have to say, uh, the concept of active learning three years ago for me was uh, non-existent uh, until I started my project and started really investigating whether, you know, all these EdTech products like Kahoot, you know, Mentimeter, blah, 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 right, actually help students learn. And they do in a sense of active learning. And uh, active learning, without getting into the big details, is anything other than traditional lecturing. Uh, there's a whole theory that we've explored in our POMS project to measure active learning and also classify it, define what it is to. But active learning, uh, I found out, according to the World Economic Forum report on future jobs, is like the second most important skill to have in the future. Right? And it's so true because the world is changing so fast. The problems are so big. That we need as a whole society, including our students, to actively learn new ways to collaborate, new solutions, to think up new ways to tackle different problems, to actively learn faster so that we can, you know, help solve some of the most important problems that faces our world now, right? (laughs) Including the coronavirus, right? So uh, it's a very important thing, not only in society, but also... In, like you said, the corporate world where you want to train your employees in the fastest amount of time. And to do that, you have to actively teach them and not just passively, traditionally, just lecture them.
2: And you, you mentioned um, funding briefly, but could you tell us a little bit more about how you went from embracing the idea of act- active teaching learning to, to getting funding and actually being able to embed this somewhat in, in your practice?
3: Right, the scheme and the Hong Kong government uh, is called the Triennium uh, Teaching Learning Funding Schemes, and uh, they do this every three years, and they offer up maximum of fifty million Hong Kong dollars to uh, work with, uh, collaborate and work with universities across Hong Kong. Uh, in our particular proposal, we're working with three other universities. So we're the leading university Hong Kong Polytechnic and Chinese U, Hong Kong U, and Baptist U. And basically with some very inspiring educators and friends from all these three universities, we decided, hey, we need to teach our students more actively. We need to teach them the skills to compete in the next uh, coming Knowledge economy. And so luckily, we all got our heads together. We wrote a nice proposal and we were funded $15 million from Hong Kong. And uh, so at each university, they've made different apps and platforms themselves, which we proposed in our project. And so far, we've got over 13 apps, platforms, and active learning pedagogies. We've Constructed together.
2: But how have our guests adapted to the world presented to them through the novel coronavirus outbreak? And how long has the kind of uh, on campus uh, sort of closure been now?
4: Well, we, it was uh, after TET, so that was at the end of February. What was interesting here is that the government allowed universities back for a week. Uh, But then there was uh, an upsurge in the number of cases, so they suspended, again, all education. Um, So we've actually had the situation where we went from face-to-face to to online, back to -to face-to-face for a week, and then back to online.
2: I've put here... Many of our listeners will be currently working out online learning strategies for their schools, colleges, universities, or workplaces, obviously because of uh, the Hong Kong protests and now coronavirus, um, and also your um, underlying interest in active learning pedagogies and face-to-face versus online teaching. You've been immersed in working online for over four months. So I just wondered if you had any tips based on your experience and you know, what you found difficult and what you would recommend for people who are sort of facing this and uh, perhaps moving more online than they have previously?
3: Oh, good question, Sophie. Yeah, and very relevant now that uh, every all of us uh, teachers around the world have to, unfortunately, uh, do this now go from face-to-face to online. But uh, don't worry, Ali. Uh, so we had to deal with it four months ago and... At first, I to be honest, I was also nervous. And, uh, you know, what type of platform should I use? What's the pedagogies I should use? You know, you know the equipment and all that stuff. Uh, but basically, to the teachers all out there in the world, just whatever your school platforms offer, Zoom, Microsoft Teams, Blackboard Collaborate, Google Meet, etc cetera, just uh, try your best to... Yeah, you have to, to get used to the technology first, and if you have, if you're lucky enough to have two different options, just choose the one, the platform that you're most comfortable with. Don't, uh, you know, take any pressure from admin or whatever, but just uh, the one that helps you teach better, okay? And you're most comfortable with. Don't, you know, uh, take suggestions from, you know anyone else, but what you're comfortable with. Uh, that's the most important thing, I think. And the second most important thing is, you know, the students are all having trouble too, not just you, <laughs> uh, learning online. So you see this, I, I have a six-year-old daughter, and, you know. Yeah, and to the 24-year-old or 21-year-old, 18-year-old university students, they're going to have trouble at first. So so try to make it fun and light at the in, in, in the first couple of times, you know. Just do something funny. You know, do some the floss or whatever. <laughs> Try to you know get them comfortable. And you know, don't, don't just jump into it and start teaching, you know. Uh and you know, after you get comfortable, you know you know, first making sure your camera's on, headphones are all you know, speakers are fine. And you know how to, you know, turn the pages on a your PowerPoint or write on your iPad you know, projected on the screen then after you get the basics done you know then maybe you can try to be more creative and introduce some active teaching methods in online learning so like uh, basic one is a basic chat right students are going to have questions make sure there's a chat at least in a platform you're using if there's a polling system that's a bonus <laughs> so that that's an automatic yes a good uh, way to collaborate and engage your students if you can inject some games in there okay um, that'd be great so I've been using our tool by the boom then other people have been using Kahoot I, I use my' You'll teach for the back channel, uh, and then yeah just you know we're, we're all gonna get through it just don't stress over it That's what I say. So, yeah, just try your best. We're all having, including, the, like I said, the the students. So just try to relax and have fun. That's all I say.
2: (laughs) Just to come back to one of your points, uh, you mentioned that perhaps the baseline experience at the moment is, you know, you get your degree and then you think you're set for life. I just wondered, given our current um, global experience of rapid, and massive adjustment in the face of coronavirus, how people locally are um, perhaps tapping into some of those skill sets that you mentioned would be required in the longer term anyway. So, you know, being able to adapt and being able to uh, adjust how they work or how they learn.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, there is still some amount of disparity and divide. Mm. Uh, You find there are pockets of society which are ready I mean, take the organization I work for, for uh, example, MDEC. Uh, you know, we've co- within, within 12 hours, we kind of jumped onto a completely online learning, online working mode, right? Uh, but then there are pockets uh, in the country where either there is insufficient connectivity mm. or just, you know, the lack of um, the know how and the familiarity, you know, to, to get online. So it's not it's not entirely pervasive yet. I would say we still have some ways to go. I mean, it's definitely better than what it was, even you know, even three, four, five years ago. But um, but it's not completely. I mean, you mentioned in the beginning uh, before we started the chat, you had spent some time in Sarawak, and so you know there are parts of remote Sarawak which may not be able to get online. Um, so those things we need to narrow the digital divide and also to ensure everybody has got, you know, a, a better opportunity to access.
2: Absolutely. Um, I put here, you, you spearhead digital technology talent development strategies for K-12 students, tertiary education and digital upskilling for the existing workforce. Um, and to date, these initiatives have collectively impacted more than 8000 schools, 16 tertiary institutions and 800,000 individuals. Um, How have you delivered these skills development programs?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, from the onset, um, we had decided that we wanted, whatever we did, we wanted it to be scalable and sustainable. And the only way to achieve this is through collaboration and partnership, right? There's there's, There's no way any single organization is going to be able to achieve that kind of impact. And I think we've been really lucky to find strong partners here in Malaysia. Um, so on the school side of things, uh, where, you know, here we work closely with the Ministry of Education in Malaysia, uh, and we work, we help the Ministry of Education to convince decision makers to integrate computational thinking and computer science into the national school's curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um and ever since ever since we you know we got the buy-in from the top, which was in 2016, uh, my team, my organization has been working really closely with the Ministry of Education to prepare teachers you know to teach these new subjects and these new concepts across the country. And that would not have been uh, possible if we didn't have the Ministry of Education support number one. But number two, it also would not have been possible if we did not have private sector coming on board. So we do also work with quite a few private sector partners, uh, you know, some of the big tech companies, for example, who have come on board to help with, you know, like you have the Microsoft educators, you have the Google, uh, you know, education innovators and so on, uh, who play their role. So to... So they've sort of come on board and said, okay, how do we help to scale this further? So I think there's definitely, you know, stronger with all these other partners on board. So I would say that's the critical success factor. I mean, even with universities, we work closely with the Ministry of High Education, mm. um, you know, and, and, uh, it, and in my previous role when we used to uh, teach micro businesses digital marketing, uh, we we partner with more than thirty organizations that have a focus on entrepreneur development, and so we just developed the module. Um, we even got an off call certification from the UK, and then we embedded it into these <laughs> organizations, who then train their respective beneficiaries. So it's kind of like a train the trainer model, but mm-hmm. it's something that we did definitely hand in hand
2: with partners. One company working on such partnerships is HP Education. Nielsen recently predicted that streaming is set to rise by 60% during the current global coronavirus pandemic. For many tech companies, this is an extremely pressing time, with unprecedented demand stressing out servers, users and company execs as they battle to meet the needs of their learners. For heavy data lifting projects, research and remote work, what could be a good testbed challenging scenario to tackle today's challenge of magnitude coronavirus? what about space-to-earth comms? Here's Christian Jones, who works on strategy and planning for the Z-Central Remote Boost technology by HP, to talk about how it came about.
0: It is a fascinating story. So at HP, we have a product, uh, Z-Central Remote Boost, and in years past, previous generations were called Remote Graphic Software. But even before that, in HP Labs, uh, where we keep most of our PhDs contained. Sometimes they get out. But (laughs) in HP Labs, we developed um, some technology that was able to do very low or lossless compression of images. And when NASA was sending their uh, rover uh, Mars missions out and they needed to collect images, uh, they actually came straight to HP Labs and they wanted to get at the source of of, uh, our image technology because those images were very precious to them. And they wanted to be able to, to capture them, keep them without losing the quality, and then transmit them back to Earth. So this uh, the genesis of this project was really um, using this uh, internal HP Labs codec to transmit images back to Earth. Now, now, after we had done that, we had also been in the process of productizing it um, to rethink how people do remote desktop, specifically the engineers, scientists, designers, and even animators at the time Mm -hmm. who had very uh, graphically rich programs on their screen. And we thought, well, it's kind of like streaming high quality images, but doing so in a very interactive uh, way. And that's how this this product that's now Z Central Remote Boost uh, was born, was for those specialists, those those, uh, highly graphically intensive applications, but to allow people to remotely connect to them. Not always from space, that one was unique, (laughs) but (laughs) maybe from the high-powered computers that they would have in their office or on campus, and do so from home or other locations.
2: Now, space is one thing, but how does such technology relate to the needs of universities?
0: Yeah, so right now in this climate of remote working, um, you know, it's very interesting. The challenge that a lot of universities face is that a lot of the the programs, um, whether it is geoscience, data science, machine learning our engineer, engineering and animation you know they have pretty high powered desktop computers that are are filled with a lot of memory high powered graphics card to be able to run the professional apps that uh, the students need to, to become proficient in in the real world and the projects in those apps don't always travel well if you wanted to do it in a laptop or via a Chromebook in a web browser, you actually need that power of that computer. So they're kind of stuck where these computers are now locked on campus Mm. and the students aren't able to access them. And that's where this, this product is essential remote boost has really uh, come in handy. And and we've been (laughs) quite busy trying to support universities over the last month, get their infrastructure set up so that students can be at home with their own devices but remote into the high-powered computers that have that expensive software and run it uh, you know, almost as if it was local on whatever mobile device they've got at, at their home. And so getting the universities set up so they can continue to teach the courses and, and give the hands-on experience to students and those types of programs has been uh, you know, a pretty big focus for us uh, the last few weeks.
2: One thing to remember in the rush to get online and set up distance learning is to consider the pedagogic goal and to consider the most apt technology available. Our guests explain more. So this is an example.
1: Uh, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, there are some parts of Malaysia where connectivity is not as great as you know we would hope it it, it should be uh, to facilitate online learning and so on and so forth. But these areas, many of these areas have television, and so we are now working with one of the um, satellite TV um, providers in Malaysia to to uh, broadcast video tutorials on things like coding, you know, and uh, and software, hardware, programming, that sort of thing, right? And so, so and, and and that's the only way to reach out to more people, you know. So rather than we go and ask for funds. Mm-hmm. It's best to identify each partner for what they can do to complete the picture or to help scale uh, some of these initiatives even further.
2: Put here, uh, BUV has invested $25 million in blended learning infrastructure, technology facilities yeah. and faculty. Can you talk us through some of the systems you use and what pedagogy this helps to enable?
4: Well, um, BUV is a traditional face-to-face university, so the technology was really to supplement what we do in the classroom. And we use Canvas as our virtual learning environment where the lectures are recorded and where faculty can really develop the richness of their subject. We also here at BUV give every new student an iPad and all the textbooks that they need as their reference books for their modules, but also more generally are downloadable and given to them as ebooks. So that technology has enabled us to uh, be fast in terms of changing books, um, changing the lessons and so forth. And actually, it has it has come to to be a godsend, really, in terms of the latest the pandemic, the uh, coronavirus. Where actually, overnight, we changed from supported face to face teaching to online teaching, and we've carried out uh, one thousand two hours of lectures online in the last five weeks. So the transition was very smooth. Um, Was it perfect? No. But again, it's a fast learning curve. And the students have really benefited from that because one of the things that we found is that students like stability. They like to know what is happening. And we've been able to manage that transition from the timetable they had here here on campus to the same timetable, just done remotely. So we've been uh, very fortunate to have invested in the technology.
2: That's really interesting. And are you seeing that the students are turning up to the live lectures or are they kind of accessing things afterwards?
4: Uh, they're doing both. We, we've we um, kept our very strict attendance policy. So students still have to attend on time the online Uh, lectures because for us this is an interim measure while the university is shut for obviously health and safety reasons so for us we wanted to maintain that stability so the students turn up on time they uh, get to see and participate in the live lecture because we do it via canvas's conference facility so the lecturer can see them and they can see the lecturer Um, uh, but then also they can uh, look at the recording later when they're doing their assessments or if they're revising or recapping on what's been happening.
2: That's a really interesting point about the students because um, I know right at the beginning of the interview you mentioned how intimidating it was to have 200 students and when you ask a question it's completely silent and I'm wondering also from the student perspective is it very intimidating to have 200 students when you're thinking of asking a question? And I wondered what your thoughts are on whether we can really achieve active learning in a sort of 200 person face-to-face environment, or whether there's other ways to kind of encourage the students to um, develop some of those skills that you mentioned were needed in, um, in the World Economic Forum report. So, you know... There's, I suppose there's, there's a benefit to students feeling confident communicating through technology, but also there's this skill set we need to develop of students feeling confident um, communicating in person and um, you know, giving their opinion in public as well.
3: Yeah uh, So you're absolutely right, Sophie. I mean uh, we can really do so much when our classes are 200 in size yeah with active learning right and developing those skills you're talking about like confidently expressing ideas and uh collaborating with other groups of people right so uh in reality you can only do so much of train that so much of that skill in a large class uh so we try our best with these technologies for sure but you're right we it's I mean I don't think we do it at a hundred percent success rate so in that cases smaller tutorials are maybe better suited to teach those skills or one to one even uh, like communicating one to one presenting to a small group of uh, students and but the pedagogies are No matter what size class. And that's why when I was first talking to you, we were talking about your whole goal of the EdTech podcast is to bring together Ed and tech. But the first, it should be, yeah, Ed should go before tech for sure. And it's good that people call it EdTech because without education, there's no technology. And it's the, it's the active learning teaching methods and the strategies the pedagogies that will have the most influence on giving our students that skill of actually working together, collaborating together, discussing innovative things together, pushing each other, you know? And it's the pedagogy, you know, the peer instruction, the collaborative problem-based learning, the... You know, basic question and answer, case-based learning, sometimes game, game-based learning. It's the pedagogies that will ultimately be the reason why our students will get those skills. And so that's why, uh, we as a Palms project, we try to, that's our first word in our Palms project is pedagogic and active learning. That's the first thing we need to concentrate on. The technology later will be just a supporting mechanism to help the efficacy of implementing those active learning strategies. And we'll also help our students be active learners.
2: So with our guests drawing on many different experiences of education around the world, what do they love about education in Asia versus the rest of the world? And what would they love to see more of? You mentioned previously that what gave you your grey hair was the British education system, not the Vietnamese. So that sounds yeah. like a continuation of your last point, probably.
4: Yeah, I think um, I'm not going to say Vietnam is not challenging. Vietnam is a complex environment, but also it, it's a very uh, structured environment. So the, the bureaucracy is there but it it's very much as though it's building blocks rather than a web of things to do so i think in that sense it it i wouldn't say it's easy but it's more understandable once you understand it, it takes a while to get to understand it but once you get there it is quite uh, a logical system and it doesn't change that much. So it's not the latest fad, the latest initiative. It's the the fundamentals that are important here. Policy does change. There have been uh, some very recent uh, new decrees that the government had done on higher education and how universities are governed and so forth. But they are generally fairly um simple in structure, implications and implementation are more complex and happen over time. But I think, again, it's that thing that actually, if you understand the system, if you understand how Vietnam works, it's logical and it doesn't stress you out too much. So you you know what's going to happen. You know if there's a new degree, There'll be a period of transition and a period of um, identifying the major points and also about how government implements those points across the country. So it, it's a process. It's not overnight. It's, it's a, a process where government listens to the stakeholders and will then develop the ways it wants the new decree uh, implemented.
5: Um, in, in terms of research, um, absolutely, universities from the very beginning of, uh, you know, the first university, um, they're well-placed to actually investigate challenges facing society um, and explore ways that uh, we can look at the world, look at these challenges, and come up with solutions. Um, and it's uh, no no coincidence that HP sort of began um I guess it's life as uh, an offspring of um, Stanford University. So um, what we know is that research is super important, but now we're in a, a place where universities are wrestling with this uh, challenge around how do we actually, um, you know, sort of address what is very rapidly moving in terms of different kinds of skills and a mixture of skills. So we're we're talking about... Um, you know, sort of things that we need in, I guess, human capital development that look a lot different to our historical view of how we'd prepare tertiary education. So, um, traditional degrees are less important, still important, but less important, more important is the ability to produce people who are lifelong learners. So, universities doing a great job right now of trying to challenge themselves and adapt the way they structure courses and and, uh, curriculum to provide a more agile and balanced sort of study for people. Um, But nonetheless, this is um, not an easy task for most universities placed in the context of uh, national legislation. So there's a lot of work um, that universities come up against just in terms of the, um, I guess, the rules and regulations and governance Um, But but certainly they have their eyes fixed on what they need to do.
2: Absolutely. We hear that a lot in the UK with some sort of new universities that are popping up and trying to be more interdisciplinary and, um, uh, you know, have a more progressive uh, approach to which students they take on, not always based on traditional assessment. But then what gets recognised as a university with a capital U Um, has to then slot into more traditional forms of of regulation. So it's kind of like a catch-22 sometimes um, in terms of breaking out of that model. Um, I think what's quite interesting about current circumstances is certainly here in the UK, um, you're seeing sort of traditionally viewed as quite sluggish, large organisations um, whether that's in healthcare, or education, suddenly rapidly turn around things with the backing of government, the public, because of the circumstances. So it's it's allowing people to imagine what's possible, um, and it'll be interesting to see if it continues.
5: Absolutely, and and Sophie, you know the the nature of our learning is um, becoming more credential based. So that's mm. this this idea that. Um, We can find the knowledge and skills that we need in a short space of time. It could be on demand and then um, undertake a relatively short period of time uh, of study and acquire those skills and uh, knowledge that we need to undertake a task. And so the devices that we have in our hands every day are a fantastic example of how without really setting out to do it, We've empowered a whole bunch of people, um, certainly the three of us on this call, um, to go out and acquire skills and knowledge that we've needed uh, very practically at the time that we needed it. So um, not that any three of us are a doctor um, on this call, but I'm sure that we've all uh, looked up symptoms or investigated um, you know a medical condition. Uh, either for ourselves or for a loved one. And thanks to technology, we have that capacity. So I guess that's a, a common example where we're now fixing things and learning things in a in a way which is far more agile. And so mm-hmm. universities are sort of at the forefront of investigating um, this new way of leveraging technology and allowing us to do um, something really important. So there are two things I I always think about in terms of learning uh, that are precious to people. And the first one is that time is probably the most precious of all things that we have in our lives. We have a finite amount of time that we live. So you could measure our lives in terms of hours or minutes. Um, So anything we can do that compresses that, that that attaches value into each and every hour of study is is wonderful. Um, And the second piece is, It's about location and where we are, where we find ourselves. And that's not just the geographical location, but also in terms of the context of um, our society, our culture, our family. And so, you know, we're at a a really interesting time in history where technology is able to meet us in these moments, these moments that would otherwise, um, you know, not be uh, able to be leveraged for learning because we're. Not in the right place. We're not mm-hmm. in, uh, dare I say, it, the right family or the right uh, socioeconomic economic group uh, or cultural group. Um, so I think this is w- this is a really exciting place, and one of the most important things that technology needs to do, and certainly HP's focus, is to look at these two factors and th- and, and really heavily consider how that empowers um, our research and our direction to assist learning.
2: And finally, as we record this, news arrives in that China will be going ahead with its famous entrance exam Gaokao, with a record high of 10.7 million students expected to sit the in-person test, postponed by just a month from its original date. Perhaps some green shoots for the higher education sector globally. Now, before we go, and in this time of need, some resources to help you through these challenging times. OK, I've got here, what books, resources, people, projects or students are you most inspired by? Well, I think,
4: I mean, from books, I'm a political junkie and and leadership <laughs> junkie. So um, one of my favourite is Doris Kearns uh, Goodwin, the presidential historian. And I was actually reading before this crisis, Leadership in Turbulent Times, which kind of actually seems very very act even more act yeah. than it was before before uh, the pandemic so um that's my uh, little bit of light relief obviously watching politics and listening to politics uh occupies a lot of my spare time um but people and students wise i think i love a challenge and Obviously, it's great when students do fantastically well and every academic wants to see their students do that. But for me, I think the most satisfying cases are where students who have struggled, who have thought they're going to give up, they can't finish. And through the pastoral side of the job and with colleagues, persuading them, influencing them, supporting them and then seeing them cross uh, the stage at their graduation, Mm. maybe not with the best degree, but with a degree that they know they've earned through their own effort and through all the trials, I have to say that still brings a tear to my eye every (laughs) single time.
3: Okay, so uh, I have to say there's three books I was most inspired by in my career. First, is I was a trained physicist at first. I got a physics undergrad degree. It's called Surely You're Not Joking by Richard Feynman. He's a genius. And, uh <laughs> invented basically the Feynman path. But it's a very light uh, book and it's very funny. It tells a story about a genius who's a, also like a, a guitar player. and Anyway. Uh, the second is called The Idea Factory, Learning How to Think at MIT by Pepper White. Yeah, it basically teaches you how to survive and basically be innovative It's a big little book and then kind of technically I read this book when I was like 14 how to read and do proofs but basically it teaches you how to logically work through mm. problems step by step uh, it's a math kind of type of book but really I've applied this even to my teaching projects now just an innovation design thinking really, how to get from one step to another and, you know if it doesn't work you go another route and stuff like Fantastic. that well people you know my PhD supervisors Michael Siegel my research collaborators uh Chung Cheng Wei who's like a genius in partial differential equations and and there's been educational people too uh but, you know, Bill Gates all those people uh just inspire me too you know, it's they're really wanting to help the world you know it's it's you know that's what it's all about, really. What's What's the point of doing something where we can't help people?
1: Okay, that's a tough question because <laughs> I'm inspired by so many different people. But I think, you know, firstly, it's with you know, inspired by my team. I have an I'm blessed uh, because I have an extremely hardworking team, and they care. You know, every day when they show up for work, it's not just for a paycheck, but they come to work because it's a calling. And they bring their best self to work every day, wanting to make a difference in people's lives. So that's what kind of keeps me going. Um, I think secondly, it's the partners that we have. And these partners give their time and their, their own resources so willingly. Um, they're more like friends. Uh, you know. They care deeply about education and skill development um, in the country. And... Each of them, these individuals, have taken it upon themselves to convince their corporations to commit to the cause. So, you know, that is inspiring because it just just tells me that there are so many people that see the need and are willing to work together. And I think, of course, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the biggest inspiration are the children themselves. In Malaysia, we've met so many students from whether it's rural or other underprivileged backgrounds, Um, who come up with, you know, just amazing, amazing inventions to solve problems, not just in their community, um, but even the world, you know. There there are kids who are uh, coming up with ideas to address the UN Sustainable Development Goals, for example, right? And what they've proven to me is that, given the opportunity, all children are geniuses in their own right.
5: Yeah, look, um, (laughs) this... This field is is full of just incredible people and I'm often uh, talking about these people who are involved in education as being like-hearted, like-minded. Um, so, I have the great privilege to uh, work across so many people um, in many NGOs and uh, organisations um, but even on the ground meeting the the students. Um, I had the privilege of... Um, uh, being in Mumbai a few months ago uh, last year, and I was I was visiting um, a, a particular institution that takes the very most the most vulnerable um, students out of uh, Mumbai's biggest slum, and the people that work at the coalface of education they inspire me. So, I think the most powerful thing for me is uh, being in those environments where. You see the change happen and you're meeting the people um, as it's happening. And that that for me is is sort of the fire in my engine.
2: So students like stability, don't recreate the wheel to continue teaching and learning. Engage students where possible with back-end channels, polls and interactivity. The digital divide is very real, so use the tools that best help with access. And pay heed to teacher development and funding opportunities to utilise tech with impact. Just some of the messages from this week's episode. And don't forget, online is amazing, but everything has its limits.
0: Yeah, so so we'd love to help everyone. There are certain circumstances when remoting the screen actually um, isn't quite enough. And I actually have a brother-in-law who's getting his PhD and, and uh, doing a lot of uh, neuroscience studies. and he was given his pass as, as a required worker who's able to be out and about. Because he has to keep his, his lab mice alive, <laughs> uh, the, the studies that they're doing. So he, he's able to still actually go on campus for that. But you're right. There are still circumstances where you probably need to be on site um, to use it. But for the other ones, the ones with the, the remote compute, what we've done is we, um, anyone that had an HP in a workstation or Z computer, they already had this for free. And so mostly we were just getting the word out to the universities that had that. And then the change that we did is we, we gave a 90-day trial license for anybody so that all universities could get through the semester that they're in uh, and just quickly uh, you know make these programs accessible
2: that's all for this week thanks so much for listening in and huge thank you to all of my guests and Beth for supporting this second what matters in edtech series and hp for supporting this episode in the spirit of knowledge sharing during this time please do get in touch with what Resonated what you'd like to add or what you want to hear about in our next episode looking at the Middle East and Africa. You can leave your listener audio message for inclusion at speakpipe.com forward slash the EdTech podcast. To continue the conversation online, use the hashtag EdTech or go to the Twitter accounts at podcastedtech or at bet underscore show on all the social medias. Or for all the show notes, including resource and reading recommendations, it's the EdTech And for more content, check out the BetAsia website, where you can find out more about how to stay connected with the community. Have a great week.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Sophie, for the invitation. It's been a privilege to speak to you today.
3: (laughs) It's been my absolute pleasure, Sophie. And uh, thank you so much for inviting me to do a podcast.
4: Now I know what gift to bring everyone in the UK when we come back, which is toilet roll, which is uh, in good supply here, there is no rush on toilet roll in Vietnam. Take care. Bye bye. Bye
2: bye. bye, bye.